Before we begin, I wanted to let you know this story revolves around something that happened in Brazil. And because of that, the majority of the interviews were carried out in Portuguese. They've been voiced over in English, but you'll still hear some of the original audio. A legal case surrounding this story is currently taking place in England. And for that reason, some parts of this podcast might feel a little British-centric. But by the end of it, you'll see why it impacts you, no matter where you're listening from. Okay, let's begin. My name is Liz Bonin. I'm a biologist and wildlife and environmental broadcaster who spent the last 15 years reporting on the wonders of the natural world and our impact on it. And in this series, I'm going to tell you a story. In many ways, it has all the elements of a fairy tale. It's filled with magical places, with people who speak to the trees in the forests and to the fish in the rivers. It's a story about people whose roots plunge deep into the earth, deep, deep down to where the earth sparkles. It's a tale of love, the pursuit of happiness, and of belonging, of relationships, our connections to each other and to nature, and the need to be connected. It's also about the earth beneath our feet, the rivers that flow alongside us, the role we play in the circle of life, and the heroes that fight to protect all life on earth. And like any classic fairy tale, there are those involved that might be considered villains. Because this is a story underpinned by greed, deception, and centuries of tradition disappearing overnight. This chronicle is still unfolding and the end is still not written, nor will it be neat or tidy. But by choosing to be here with me and to listen, you are doing something extremely powerful. You're showing that you care about the people in this story and about their lives. And the truth is, that's more than has been done for them for a very, very long time. In the southeastern corner of Brazil lies a region of exceptional natural beauty. Imagine yourself soaring high above this land, watching huge rivers beneath you snaking their way towards the ocean. A bounty of smaller tributaries feeds into these rivers, forming the arteries and the veins of this lush landscape. You soar higher to crest some of the biggest mountains in Brazil, topped with an abundance of ferns, fruiting trees and native plants unlike anywhere else on the planet. The air is pure, it's fresh, the visibility above the canopy stretching for miles and miles. The landscape beneath you teems with life. Birds with incredible plumage of turquoise blues, honey yellows and vermilion reds. Monkeys of russet, ebony and golden fur are swinging from branch to branch and tiny legs of beetles, spiders and ants 
are scuttling beneath, tantalizing the tree frogs and the snakes lying in wait. The very earth breathes and the rivers sigh. And slowly, laying their bare feet softly on the earth, a human walks. Nothing is particular or extraordinary about their presence. They're coexisting with all the other life here. All is in balance. This was the way in this magical place for as long as the land held memory. Until other humans arrived. Humans who decided there was a cold, a hard value to this place. That it could be owned and that money could be made here by digging deep, deep into the earth and ripping it apart. Soon, this land was filled with scars. Trees were torn down. Mountains were knocked to their knees. Land was claimed and it was renamed. They called the region Minados Matos Gerais and later shortened it to Mina Gerais or General Mines. These white men believed that humans too could be owned and in large boats brought in many millions of African slaves from across the ocean to do their work for them. Working long hours in inhumane conditions, the slaves mined gold from this precious land to be sold to faraway places they had never seen. The gold was mainly transported to the Portuguese crown, and at the time, England was Portugal's biggest economic partner following the signing of the Methuen Treaty in 1703. So England benefited greatly from the mining in Minas Gerais, accumulating these reserves that served to fund the Industrial Revolution. While this gold glimmered in the crowns of kings and queens of Portugal and England, the land began to suffer as more scars were etched all across it. Rivers became polluted with mining waste, and the health and integrity of the forests started to collapse. Some money was pumped into a few small areas, and the first mining towns started to take shape, while those who lived on their outskirts tried to cling on to their traditional ways of life. By the 18th century, the situation became untenable. Brazil came to a momentous crossroads in its history the wealthy European landowners needed to make a decision and make it fast. Demand for their mined minerals was increasing all around the globe, and all they wanted to do was keep up. In 1844, the Casabranca gold mine in Minas Gerais was owned by the Brazilian Company Limited that, despite its name, was a British-owned company. 450 slaves worked deep within this mine, extracting gold by hand. Conditions were incredibly precarious, with records noting that the mine shafts were constricted and really difficult to access, and no measures had been taken to secure the walls of the mine against landslides. Mines that had high maintenance costs were not attractive to foreign investors, and keeping costs low and profits high was the top priority. Some slaves mined at depths of over 300 feet, 
in caverns where water consistently ran down the walls. The collecting water threatened the ability to mine at such depths, and so a system of pumps was installed to drain the mine. And then in 1844, a huge rock collapsed near the entrance of the mine, trapping hundreds of slaves that were working inside. The company tried to move the rock and to make room around its sides, but their efforts were unsuccessful. This was the only entrance to the poorly designed mine, and soon enough, oxygen began to run low. The operators decided that the best solution was to drown those trapped inside. They had reversed the pump system that had been installed in the mine, and in doing so, they flooded the mine with water. According to a report filed by the company after the incident, this was done to, quote, end their suffering. Records show that for days following this decision, you could hear the slaves trapped inside screaming for help as they slowly drowned. Records also show that the British-owned company then covered up the incident. Now, you might be forgiven for thinking that a story like this could only happen in the 1800s, but the people of Brazil today also know this story only too well. And on November the 5th, 2015, an event occurred in Brazil that would change the course of history forever. The mining system in Brazil, since the early beginnings of the activity, was a murder machine of people. First, with the slaves. And nowadays, we keep seeing this kind of disaster and these mass killings of people. And this is not acceptable. The license to work, the license to mining, the license to extract minerals from the earth, it's not a license to kill people. I'm Liz Bonin, and this is Dead River. Episode 1, Low Risk. In 1710, during the midst of the gold mining boom in Brazil that was fueled by slavery, a town called Bento Rodriguez in the south of Minas Gerais was established. It was named after one of the Banjerantes, or fortune hunters, who first prospected for minerals in the area. By 2015, Bento Rodriguez was much more than a historical gold mining town. It had become the home of a tight-knit community of over 600 people. It was marvelous to be brought up in Bento Rodriguez. My desire was to live a life just like my mom had, to have a family, to get married, to bring up children there. It was remarkable to have been born and raised in Bento Rodriguez. It felt like that town was a royal dominion. That's what it was. We lived like royalty. We lived as people who deeply cared for the environment. And in return, the environment cared for us. 
It was a privilege to live for 47 years in that town. Those are the voices of Monica dos Santos and Mauro da Silva, both residents of Bento Rodriguez. There were simple houses. They are not rich people. They are very simple people. But the, the houses were in the middle uh, of a place where they have space to have animals, to plant, to have fruits, to have some vegetables. Some of them had animals to, to eat, chicken, pork, and something like this. And also their pets, the dogs and cats and everything. They had a strong sense of community. They have many bonds because some families, the family roots went back centuries ago. That last voice is Christina Serras. You'll be hearing from her a lot on this podcast. Christina is a Brazilian journalist who worked for Brazilian news channel Globo News for over 20 years and whose book, the tragedy of Mariana, you'll hear excerpts from throughout this story. We had a very strong connection with the land. We led simple lives, right? A lot of the families, uh, for example, practice agriculture and farming. Michelle Estevao is a descendant of the slaves brought to Brazil to work in the first gold mines of Minas Gerais, she is part of the Quilombola community that was originally formed in the 17th century by escaped slaves. We grow the food that we eat and sometimes we exchange what we've grown for other goods. So my family might plant corn and our neighbor might plant beans and then we will swap these things in this way. Everyone has access to everything on the land. And we have a deep bond with nature. We can know what time of the day it is, even if we don't have a watch or a clock. We can tell what temperature it is outside from the color of the sky. We know when to plant crops and when to harvest them. We know what each phase of the moon means and how it affects the land. We have a very strong relationship with nature and also with each other. We're very connected in the way we live. The way people live in this part of Mina Gerais might sound unusual and even a little bit plain to those of us who live in big cities or places where we might have become disconnected from the people around us and from nature. But people in Mina Gerais knew who their neighbors were and who their neighbors' mothers and grandmothers were. They knew what a shadow on the ground meant and how to tell if a fish was old enough to be harvested before it was caught so as not to harm the ecosystem. They knew what they wanted from life and they were content. And for people like Manuel Marcos Muniz, this way of life passed down through the generations is just as important today as it was for his ancestors. I live here in Bento Rodrigues. Uh, my father was born and raised here in Bento Rodrigues. Their parents came here and they bought a house and they raised their family here in Bento Rodrigues. We, as a family, are so intertwined in this place, so much so that the street next to here 
was named after Raimundo Muniz. He is my grandfather, and he was the storyteller of Bento Rodrigues. My father died in 2007. And later on, when they built the sports court in the town, they named it after him. So we are one of the families that have been here for a very long time. Manuel's family has lived in Bento for four generations. You know, it's the best place to live. It's the place we had already chosen to live for the rest of our lives. The people here were at peace. They had a plan and wanted nothing more than to live out their days in the community they cherished. They were proud to be from Bento Rodriguez. Here, place names were not just an address, they formed people's identities. At the very beginning of this project, we spoke to a former mayor of Mariana, a city neighboring Bento Rodriguez. He said something that stood out for us before we'd even turned on the recording equipment. He beamed as he told us that Mariana was the most beautiful place in all of Brazil, maybe even in the whole world. It was so beautiful that when the King of Portugal visited the region in the 17th century, he quickly named it after his wife, Maria Ana. All around Mariana was beautiful too. It was verdant and lush, at one point covered in biodiverse rainforests. But Mariana was deemed beautiful for another reason too. It was wealthy. It was built on the back of gold mining money. And you can tell, gold still trims the buildings and glimmers off the churches. In its heyday, gold very nearly paved the roads. But by 2015, 14 kilometers from the city of Mariana and just six kilometers from the town of Bento Rodriguez, it wasn't gold they were mining for anymore. It was iron. Back in 2007, a mining company called Samarco had started building the Fundao Dam to collect mining waste from the iron ore they were extracting in their Mariana mining complex. Samarco needed another tailings dam because they were increasing the production of ore, iron. So they needed another place to deposit the mining waste. That's why they began the process of got all the licenses to have another dam that is Fundão. To understand the relationship between mining companies and the state in Brazil, it's worth briefly outlining the process involved in getting a license or permission to mine. And in the case of the Fundão Dam, it's particularly relevant because of just how quickly San Marco was granted a license to build the dam. Here in Brazil, we have legislation. It's hard to explain in English, but I try to a company like San Marco, a, a, a mining company so big, you have to go through a license process. And in this license process, to establish your activities, you have to prove that the activities are safe enough 
and you have to give information, very detailed information about the impacts on the environment. And I discovered that this process of the Fundão Dam was very fast. This process, the company has to deal with the public authorities. And I discovered that in this case, the process was very fast and the company didn't give to the authorities all the documents, the studies, and the public authorities responsible for the licenses. They were very soft with the company. This is probably a good time to also tell you more about some of the companies you're going to get very well acquainted with during this series. You've already heard Christina mention Samarco, so let's start there. The beginning of Samarco goes back to the times of the dictatorship in Brazil. Uh, at that time in Brazil, we... We had a lot of big companies, big projects. When you read the story of Samarco, you have to understand Samarco inside the super cycle of commodities, like soybeans, iron ore, and so on. So you have to understand Samarco as part of this economic scenario where Brazil produces not only but mainly raw material to sell to other places and we don't build here in Brazil an industrial capacity. You'll hear the name Samarco a lot in this podcast but what's important to know is that behind this name are BHP and Vale, two of the biggest mining companies in the world. Today, they are Samarco's dual owners. They each own 50%. So, who are BHP and Vale? Broken Hill is located in New South Wales in Australia, and it was first populated by the indigenous Wiljakali people. In the 19th century, when prospectors from Europe built the town, a Wiljakali man, who they decided to call Harry, led them to a silver-streaked boulder of ironstone. And the Europeans announced the discovery of a so-called jewellery shop. Not long after, in 1883, a man by the name of Charles Rasp discovered a mound of silver and tin on a sheep farm near Broken Hill, and he went on to found the Broken Hill Proprietary Company, or BHP, so that he could break the land apart and mine the area. In the first year of operations, the company sold 2,000 shares across Australia, and by 1890, it was one of the biggest mining companies in the world. Today, BHP is the biggest company of any sector in Australia. It's also the largest private operator of cargo ships and largest mining company in the world. BHP has operated mines all over the world, from Papua New Guinea to Chile and Canada to Brazil. In Brazil, the company's main export is iron ore, the fundamental raw material for steel production. 
and to mine it as effectively as possible there, they partnered with the world's largest producer of iron ore, Vale. Vale was founded in 1942 by the Brazilian federal government. At some points of the Brazilian history, Vale was almost like a legend. At some points, I think Brazilians, even me, we were proud of Vale because it's a very big company and working with this this area, the mining area that's so important in Brazil. In 1997, Vale was privatized. Although Vale employees and some politicians protested to stop this from happening, in May of that year, the Brazilian government nevertheless auctioned a 42% interest in the company. Vale turned it into a private company and the whole story changes. You have Vale before the privatization and Vale after the privatization. And then uh, we began to question a lot of things about the company in Brazil. Because before the privatization, we in Brazil, we knew that our mining richness was kind of protected. And after the privatization, you lose control. It's a private company like any other. BHP, Vale and Samarco have a long history of operating in Mina Gerais. These wealthy and powerful companies move into towns like juggernauts, providing jobs and development and the perfect environment for dependencies to form. In some of these towns in Minas Gerais, it's a mixture of dependency but also pride. That's Dr. Andresa de Souza Santos. She is a professor at King's College in London and her research specialises in the mining towns of Brazil. People are very proud to work for some of the companies and it comes with a very um, strong local status. Because in places like Mariana, most people will work in the tourist sector, which is a very precarious sector. It uh, offers people very low-paid jobs. But then when you work for some of these mining companies, then, then you know you have a permanent income, have a reliable type of income. And these companies, they also invest on, on the region the development of a region would be very connected to the development of a company. So the majority of the people work there and the majority of the services only existed provided by the company or related to the company. So it's a very ambiguous relationship because the relationship of dependency as a relationship of intimidation, fear to be perceived as a problem by the company, a company that is so profitable, but it's a relationship of also a resentment and, and fear, right, of what am I going to lose? At the same time that they, there is a lot of resentment, and especially when there are disasters and very direct losses and loss of life, there is this fear of, of confronting. Because of this historical dependency, people living alongside the Fundao Dam had a nuanced relationship with it. Sandra Quintão 
she had uh, a small restaurant inside Bento Rodrigues and she told me very proudly how the employees of Samarco used to go to her restaurant to eat there every day. So since that I got was that people had a good relationship with Samarco, respected Samarco for the jobs, for for the relationship they they had. In 2015, Samarco was the biggest employer in the region. And for some people, like Mauro and his family, mining companies had been the main employer for entire generations in the region, all the way back to the days of slavery. Bento Rodrigues is the name of one of the pioneers that explored the region in the 18th century. And in 1710, Bento himself founded the city because there was gold mining activity. And my family... Um, we were slaves. So my ancestors, all my ancestors, were slaves. And they worked in the gold mines. For Mauro, mining and his ancestry are bound by complex ties. I can't help but to discern one from another. They're intertwined. Understanding the significance and history of mining in Minas Gerais and of the people who rely on it goes a long way towards explaining why residents of mining towns might accept the noise and pollution that comes with the industry. The jobs they get to have make the downsides more palatable. You could even say that there's an element of trust in this relationship one that extends to also trusting that these huge companies must be investing in safety measures. Pamela Isabel, a resident of Bento, recalls attending San Marco town hall meetings in which the residents' safety concerns were addressed. I always took part in all of the San Marco meetings, all of them, and they never said anything about safety, you know? Everyone, the other residents, they would ask about safety and San Marcos said everything was fine with the dam up there, that everything was just fine. They never said that we were at risk. You know, if they had, everyone would have left. They would come down into Benton, they would bring a bunch of snacks, make it all pretty, they would lay everything out. There were people who went there just to listen, but there were people who went to talk, you know. I lived there, I saw these conversations. So Marco would come and offer us courses and job opportunities. They always talked about how he worked up in the mine, what it was like, right? The older people who were always afraid would ask if the dam was okay. They would ask, is it safe for us to stay here? And they would say, yeah, it's fine. It's okay. You can rest easy. I missed only one or two meetings, you know, I was there. And I never heard that we were at risk. Despite words of reassurance, residents and employees started to worry. Edinaldo, a contracted employee of Samarco who worked at the Fundao Dam, confided in his wife, Ana Paula, that he feared for his life. I met Edinaldo when he was a driver here in Oro Preto. 
He always lived in Mariana and I always lived in Oro Preto and we met through a friend of mine because he was also a driver. Egenauto spent a few years working for a company here in Oro Preto and we came to live near my mother's house. And one day a friend called him and asked him to come to Mariana to work in a mine. He was very concerned about his safety. In fact, the week of the accident, he showed me several videos he took in the area of the dam, all the problems that were happening. He would come home and tell me, oh, nigga, the area is just like that. And he would show me some videos with a lot of stuff sipping out of the dam. And I said to him, aren't you cleaning the roads up in that area? And he said, no, it's not working. And it seemed these were signs that something was happening in the dam. But since he couldn't get that close to the dam, he only filmed from afar. Nobody knew what was going on, you know. He used to say to me, Nega, I'm going to die working, but you don't have to worry about burying me wherever I am. You can leave me in a black bag, wrap me in a black bag and leave me there. Why did he think that? I don't know. I used to say, stop being silly, Ginaldo, don't say such things. I asked my family, he didn't know he was going to die wrapped in a black bag, did he? I just imagined that he was going to have an accident, like with machines on a slope, going over a dam, the machine would turn over him. It would be something like this, you know. Anna's own fears weren't unfounded. From the very start of development, there were issues with the dam. Here's journalist Christina Serra again. The dam had problems from the early beginning. During the construction of the dam, there were problems. They changed some material used uh, in the process building of the dam. One of the contractors during the construction said to the federal police that Samarco asked him to use a cheaper material that's not the ideal kind of material to use in the structure. And the contractor didn't like it, but he did it. And there were problems in the drain system of the dam from the early beginning, during the construction, and during the early times of operation of the dam. The company tried to fix and fix it, but you see, the structure was a problem from the beginning. People have asked us, so why did you stay? Why did you stay in Bento if you knew there were problems with the dam? And the answer was, Bento Rodriguez was founded in 1710. Families had lived there for 300 years. There was history. San Marco was founded in 1974. And we didn't know the risk was great enough, so we didn't give up on our history because of this new company. They were aware, the company was aware, the company and their managers their executives, they were aware of the problems of the structure. The den was sick. The den was sick. 
and, and the treatment was not the proper treatment to a structure like this. Throughout Fondao's active operation, there were reports of small failures and fissures, cracks in the foundation, seepages from the dam and landslides inside the mine. Even amidst these concerns, the dam officially passed its regulatory checks and the company continued to extract iron ore. The Fundao Dam held an official C classification, which means it was rated to have potentially high associated damage. But this classification only spoke of the damage that could happen and that if it did happen, that it could be highly damaging. But to know if authorities thought it would happen, you had to look at another assessment. At the time, Brazil's National Council of Water Resources was responsible for assessing the risk of dams actually developing such failures or leaks or any sort of problems that could be damaging. And in October of 2015, the Fundao Dam received the last rating it ever would. Low risk. The dam was rated to be at low risk of failing. The 5th of November 2015 began like any normal day. November in Brazil is early summer, and on this Thursday it was said to be hot, with highs reaching 34 degrees Celsius. Before the sun even rose, Romeo Arlindo dos Anjos woke to a 5.15 alarm. He put on his grey uniform quietly so as not to wake his family. He kissed his wife goodbye and stepped softly into his daughter's room to kiss her forehead before gently closing the door. He drank his coffee quickly and stepped out into the warm morning air in time for the 5.50am San Marco-operated shuttle. As the day started to heat up, the other residents of Bento Rodriguez slowly began their day too, waving good morning to each other as they left their homes. Pamela made breakfast for her children, Paula got ready for her day at work, Monica packed her bag for the day and got into her car. The day was ordinary in every way. In the school of Bento Rodriguez, children played in the sun during their break. In the city of Mariana, Mauro worked at the auto repair shop he ran. And in the Mariana mining complex, Edinaldo and Romeo worked near the Fundao Dam, going through their normal daily tasks. At 2pm, Edinaldo called his wife on his lunch break. He always updated her on his day, and today he wanted to let her know about the new canteen that San Marco had opened near the Fundao Dam site. And he told me, I've just had lunch. Today was the first time we've had lunch here at the dam because they've set up a canteen here. And now I'm here inside the hall waiting to go back to work. I said, it's very hot here. And, and he said, oh, it's cool in here. And he commented on the food service, and then he said to me, oh, don't worry, because one day I'm going to give you a princess life. And I said, oh, you're very silly. <laughs> we kept talking until it was time for him to go to work. 
when we got off the phone, I noticed the time and I thought, oh, it's almost three o'clock. I'm going to have a shower and go to the grocery store because I'm going to get some mustard to make him some stroganoff for dinner because he loves stroganoff. I remember I took my phone with me and closed the front door. I didn't even take a second look behind me and I walked towards the shops. The following is an excerpt from Christina Serra's book, The Tragedy of Mariana, read by Christina. Romeo had lunch in the dining hall and then went down to the dam area driving the company's truck. He had about two hours of work left on his shift. Between 3.15 and 3.30, he received a page on his radio asking him to inspect the dam because earthquakes had been recorded in the region. Once more, he went down to Fundão. The den was like a large lake or basin, and it took advantage of the natural depression of the land to store the iron ore tailings. The tailings were made up of a mixture of mud and sand left over from the mining process. Fundão was undergoing expansion works, but it was already a gigantic and complex structure. It was 106 meters high, equivalent to a 35-story building. Romeo positioned himself at the top of the dam, about 300 meters from the right bank. Between 3.30 p.m. and 3.50 p.m., he heard a loud noise. He looked at the dam and saw the mass of tailings start to move like a jelly. It was all very fast. In a few minutes, the dam burst completely, and the stored mud began to set in motion. Something that's very, very fresh in my memory is that I drove past one of the residents of Bento Rodrigues, and he leaned out of this window and said, You killed us! You killed the people of Abenda Rodriguez! You're all guilty! My family and I were trying to drive back to Bento, and we met up with other neighbors, people who were trying to get back to Bento as well, and we were told that everyone in Bento had died. That's next on Episode 2 of Dead River. Dead River is narrated by me, Liz Bonin, and investigated by journalist Christina Serra and Pulama Kaufman. The podcast is produced by Pulama Kaufman. Stories are meant to be shared, so if, like us, you think this is a powerful and important story, please let your friends and family know about Dead River. And if you're enjoying this series, please leave a rating and review. Thanks for listening.